Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. I want you to imagine that you work for a sizable company with lots of non-Christian people. And for some of you, this won't be hard for you because you uh, actually work or live in places like this. Um, and you begin to realize that a lot of the people around you, they're, they are desperately trying to find meaning and purpose in their lives, but they don't know Jesus. They don't know God. And so you see them trying to find meaning in their money or in their stuff or in their career or their families. Um, and your, your heart breaks for them because they're not finding the ultimate purpose of their lives. So you, you actually begin to start talking to people in the office about Jesus. You start bringing Jesus up with people. And you start doing this enough times that uh, word is spreading in the company that you're kind of a freak. That you're, kind, you're someone who is spreading uh, interesting ideas or perhaps bigoted and narrow-minded ideas. And before you know it, word has spread to upper management. And you get an email from the board. We'd like you to come to a meeting and explain what it is you have been saying and teaching around this office. Whew, what would you do? Would you be ready? What would you say? Would you be ready to answer what this board is saying? Uh, this is a very similar situation to what the Apostle Paul is facing in Acts 17. Uh, you can feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you brought them this morning or use your cell phone. We'll be looking at uh, verses uh, around 16 through 34. Uh, and Paul is on his second missionary journey, um, and his, him and his companions, they had gone to Thessalonica and to Berea. They've caused riots in both places, basically, and now they have sent Paul off to Athens. Um, and so he arrives in this great city that is uh, still to, the, to this day famous uh, for its philosophy. And this is like if Paul was somehow on a missionary uh, uh, journey through America, this would be him like, you know, like landing in Harvard or Yale. You know, he's landing at the Ivy League schools, ready to share uh, the gospel with this place that's famous for uh, education and philosophical ideas. And so Paul is uh, walking around Athens, and in verse 17 it says, he was greatly distressed to see that this city was full of idols. And that's historically true. Athens, Athens was full of idols at this time. Uh, one writer says it was actually easier to meet a god than it was to meet another human being. Uh, so <laughs> you are to picture uh, walking, when you're walking around Athens, you're picturing all of these, these idols and temples and shrines and statues everywhere. Um, the only comparison I could think of that might compare is if you've ever been to the National Mall at Washington, D.C., you can't really walk anywhere without seeing some type of statue or monument to someone in American history that's important. Um, I imagine Athens was kind of like that, but even more so. Um, and so remember that people worshipped idols, actually. Ellie said it so beautifully that they, they worshipped idols because they thought that they could help them with something, that they could get something from this god. You know, if you worship this God, then you might find success in your career. If you, if you worship this, this God, we might find military success. If we worship this God, I might find love or pleasure. And so people, people wanted something from these idols, from these gods. Um, and so you always wanted to be in the God's good graces uh, to make sure that things went good in your life. Now, we may not have uh, a lot of statues or idols that uh, people worship in our culture today, um, but I do believe we treat things like these people treated idols all the time. Pastor Tim Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what an idol is. And Paul sees these idols everywhere. Paul's distressed. And it seems that he is upset that the glory that is due God, people are giving it to other people. This is a word for zeal for, for God's glory. But I also think if he's anything like me, perhaps he's also upset that these, these people, they are trapped by something that is a lie. They are trapped by something that is not helping them. And so Paul wants to do something about that. And he starts where he normally starts. He goes to the synagogue. And in verse 18, it says he reasons in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then he begins to branch out uh, into the marketplace where he reasoned with people uh, day by day. Now, this word for reasoning with people, he engages people in dialogue. He is listening. He's discerning what are they thinking, what are they believing, and he's listening carefully and he's reasoning with them to help them see the truth about Jesus Christ. So he's doing this. Then, as probably we would expect in Athens, some philosophers show up. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Uh, now, I'm going to be very simplistic, and some of you who know philosophy better than I do, you, you might say, well, you're, you're really simplifying things. Uh, but yes, I am. Uh, but to help us understand, uh, the Epicureans primarily believed that the gods or, or God is remote. You know, totally kind of they're out there. They're not really interested in the world. They're kind of just letting the world go on. Um, and everything that happens is just by chance. Uh, and that the, the end, uh, the idea of the end of the universe for the Epicurean is that it's, this is all there is. That this world just kind of goes on and then you die and then boom, that's it. And so the purpose in life for the Epicurean was basically to pursue pleasure. To make it, to live as happy as a life as possible. If this is all there is, if you just die and boom, and the gods don't really care, just live for pleasure. So that was the Epicurean. Now the Stoic was a little different. Uh, they really saw the gods in everything. The gods weren't really remote, but they were in everything. They were in creation, they were in us, and everything that happened was by fate. And their idea of the end is that in the end, we all will just be absorbed into the universe. And the purpose in life was basically to submit to the gods, just, just to submit to fate and endure it, endure what happens. Now, many in our world, they won't say that they are Epicurean or Stoic, but they still hold to some of these ideas. Many people, I think most people actually in our culture are pretty Epicurean. Uh, if they believe in a god at all, they, really, he, they will probably believe he certainly can't be known um, or he doesn't really care much about this world. He's just, God's just kind of out there. Um, and many people believe that this is all there is, that after you die, boom, there's no afterlife, uh, there's no judgment. Um, so you might as well just enjoy life, right? Just live for as much pleasure as you possibly can. You know, on the others, others are probably a bit more stoic. Uh, you know, God is, God is there, everything. Everything is just fate, just, to, just accept what is and try to be a good person. That'd be what a stoic would say. Try to be the best person you can and just accept what is. So these philosophies, if you're hanging with me, they have some things that are right and many things that are wrong, and they don't like what Paul is saying at all. In fact, they begin to make fun of him. They call him a babbler. Um, and then in verse 19, it says, they take him and bring him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. 
Now, the Areopagus was the local council. It was the authority in Athens, maybe about 100 people or so. Now, it doesn't seem that Paul is under some legal trial here, but uh, the Areopagus is investigating perhaps whether they will permit Paul to teach these new religious ideas in Athens. They want to know, what is, he, what is he teaching? So it's kind of like that board meeting. You're bringing, brought before an authority, and they want to know, what are you going to teach? What are you going to say? What are, you, what are you doing in our community? We want to know. And if you were asked the same question, what would you say? What is this faith of which you believe? And Paul begins brilliantly. He stands up in the, in the meeting of the area 22, and he says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So what's the deal with this unknown God business, right? Uh, now, remember, most people really believed in these gods, uh, and you wanted to make sure that no God was upset with you or upset with the community. And so sometimes they would discover by digging something up, uh, maybe something had been destroyed in the past through a war, and they would find some type of altar where the, the inscription of who this God was was lost. And so they said, so people in the community found this altar and they said, we better cover our bases. We don't even know who this altar is for, but we better offer sacrifices on it just to make sure that this God is not angry with us. Now, Paul uses that as a bridge. Now, he's not saying that this unknown God was intended to be Jesus or this unknown God is Jesus, but he is pointing out to them that, hey, you yourselves are saying that we don't even know what we worship. We don't even have the full picture of all that we worship. And Paul's saying to them, you don't have to be ignorant anymore because God has revealed who he is. And he's going to get to that through Jesus. And so Paul finds a bridge. He finds an inn to share the gospel with the culture. And you might want to ask yourself, what could I use? What could I use as a starting point with my friends, with the people I know, the people I work with? What could be a bridge to bring up Jesus in a way that would, uh, would make sense and that would be an inn to share Jesus? What would that be for you? So Paul finds his inn, and then he gives a brilliant speech. Now, let me, let me remind you, uh, Luke is constantly summarizing. All right, so this, this meeting with the philosophers and with the Areopagus, um, it probably lasted several hours uh, of a lot of debate and conversation and reasoning, and what do you mean by this, and who is this Jesus? And so we're, or if you read through the text, it takes like two minutes to read what Paul says. And there's no way Paul just spoke for two minutes. That was it. You know, so this would, be, this would be like saying, hey, last week, Pastor Nate gave a sermon, and he talked about opening, God opening the doors for the gospel and opening those doors for all kinds of people. And if you're here, if you're here last week, you say, yeah, that's what Pastor Nate talked about. But I talked for 30 minutes. So, okay, so I just want to know, this is what the biblical authors were constantly doing. And so essentially what we have are Paul's main points from what he said in Athens. These are the essential things Paul said uh, about the Christian faith to this uh, pagan philosophical audience. And so I'm going to summarize them into four points of my own. And I do want to give a little credit here to John Stott to help me with some of the wording of these points. Um, but really, these are four basic ideas to the Christian faith. He's at the council meeting. He's at the board meeting. Here's what we believe. Here's what I'm teaching. Number one, God is the creator 
and he doesn't live in man-made temples. God is the creator. He doesn't live in man-made temples. He, he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples bu uh, built by human hands. Now, this is a truth that would explode like a bomb in Athens. Remember, this is full of idols everywhere, right? Uh, and so Paul is saying to them, you guys have it totally backwards. God is the creator and rather we live in the temple he has made for us. We can't make a temple for the creator God. Rather, he made one for us and he placed us in it. Did you realize that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about? God, the intention of creation was that creation would be a holy meeting place between God and humankind. That it would be his holy temple where we met with him. And now we know that there is there's something inside of us says that that connection with us and him is broken. We don't experience that in the fullness anymore. And so what humans have done throughout history is they've tried to bridge that gap between us and God by building temples where they thought that they could meet with God. Not realizing that the creator is the one who built this for us and we meet with him. But God, so Paul says, God does not dwell in these man-made temples. So all these temples, all these statues, all these idols, these are meaningless. And we have to think about, well, what are the idols that we worship? You know, we don't have these physical idols anymore. But William Barclay says, it's all too true that people often worship what their hands have made. If our God is that to which we give all our time, thought, and energy, many of us are clearly engaged in worshiping things which are of, which are of our own creation. I'm fairly confident that none of you have visited the temple of Artemis uh, in the past week. I'm pretty confident that none of you have gone to the temple of Zeus in the past week. But many of us frequent the temple of money. Many of us frequent the temple of knowledge. Many of us go to the temple of pleasure. Many of us go to the temple of our smartphones. We frequent the temple of success, either our own or our children's. And we hope that maybe if we just make some sacrifices there, if we can just pour some energy into those places, ah, then I'll get what I need. Then I'll find what I need. That's idolatry. We can't find God through those things. They will not get us what we want. God is not found in the creative things of this world. He is our creator. The second thing Paul says, here's the second thing Chris, I, I'm teaching. God is the sustainer and he doesn't need us, we need him. God is the sustainer, he doesn't need us, rather we need him. That's what he says in verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now this whole institution of idol worship uh, it, it contained the idea that the gods wanted or needed something from us, right? That if we just offer some sacrifices there, that they want these rituals, or some even thought that this is how the gods were fed, that this is how you took care of the gods. Um, and Paul says, no, God doesn't need anything from us. He is absolutely transcendent, independent, and free. But rather, we need him. He is the one that's sustaining this world with life and breath and everything else. He's the creator and giver of life. And he is constantly sustaining the, wor the world by his power, his life, his energy. Nothing could exist without him. So God is entirely independent from us, but we are entirely dependent upon him. 
You know, when uh, the pandemic happened, uh, you know, in 2020, uh, we have uh, we have this uh, chalkboard in our kitchen, and from time to time, uh, we write different phrases on there, different scriptures, things that we want to be reminded of. And uh, our host daughter, Navia, is really good at calligraphy. And so we often would ask her, hey, could you write something? Could you write a verse on here? And, we, and she would do that for us. And so a couple months into the pandemic, uh, what we had her write was a phrase from Psalm 62. And it says, find rest my soul in God alone. Find rest my soul in God alone. And we needed that time and time again. And uh, we actually haven't changed the, the, uh, the sentence in a long time because we, need, we want that constant reminder. And I want to ask you, what do you turn to when you're tired? What do you turn to when you're troubled emotionally? What do you turn to when you're filled with worry or anxiety? Do you turn to something other than God? You know, these are hard days. I might submit to us that we might need more rest in God than we might usually. Uh, but some of us, we have a hard time stopping. We have a hard time stopping. And we feel the need, the constant need to be productive, like we're doing something worthwhile. And I just want to ask you, are you living like God needs you? Are you living like the world would fall apart if you just stopped and took some rest? Or conversely, I would ask you, would your life reflect like you, a lifestyle that like you need God? Am I living like I need God? Because if you're living like God really needs you and you live like the world is so dependent upon you, you're going to burn out that way. And so I'm just concerned, concerned for you. Find rest your soul in God alone. Take some time. Take some time away. Is anybody wearied by life's troubles these days? Is anybody wearied by their situations they're facing in their own life? I believe the Lord is saying to you, Oh, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your weary, your weary soul. Let him sustain you. Let him bring life back. Let him bring the joy back. Let his spirit empower you. Friends, you just have to take a little time to stop. You just have to take a little time to rest. God is our sustainer. He doesn't need us, but oh gosh, we need him. That's the second thing Paul said. The third thing Paul is going to say is God is the father and we are all prodigals. God is the father. We are all prodigals. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So, to the Epicureans, Paul says God is not distant. God is not remote. In fact, he wants to be known. He wants to have a relationship with us. And to the Stoics, he's saying, yes, God has designed the world, but actually we can know why he did. He has a purpose for us in reaching out and finding him. God wants to be known, and he designed this world so that we would seek him. And then he says the, the irony of that is he's actually not far away. He's close. We are his offspring. We don't have to look very far. And actually, Paul is, again, he's quoting some pagan authors here. He's finding another bridge. And he says, he's quoting this, this poet, we are his offspring. And so in terms of creation, yes, God is the father of all. He's the father of all humanity, yet Christian teaching says we're all estranged from our heavenly father. 
Like the prodigal son, we've all run away. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. We've all run away from home. And so many people end up worshiping anything that will make, make them feel like they belong. Because we all are away from our father. And so we're just longing for home. We're just, do you ever have this feeling? Where you just long to be, to be somewhere where you fully belong. Where you're fully yourself. Where you're, you can be fully uh, receiving grace and love. And friends, you'll only find that when you run home to your father. You'll only find that sense of belonging when you run to him. If you try to find that in anything else, you will create an idol. You will create something that will not give you the belonging that you hope for. But if you would run to your father, whose arms are wide open, you would find the purpose, the peace, the belonging that you so desperately need. And he's not far away. He's close. He's available. You belong with him. Wherever you are this morning, run home to your father. And finally, Paul's at the board meeting, and this is the last thing he says, God is the judge, and we are headed towards a resurrection. God is the judge. We are headed towards a resurrection. Verse 29, Paul says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So Paul is continuing his argument with the philosophers. Uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they basically kind of believed, you know, when you, when you died, that was it. You know, for the Epicurean, it's kind of, you're just over. The atoms d dissipate. If you're a Stoic, you kind of believe that you're absorbed into the universe, and that's the end. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The world is not headed off to a cliff of non-existence. The world is headed towards a judgment day where God is going to set everything right. And in light of that day, in light of where this whole thing is going, this whole universe, the whole of human history, is headed towards this day will we stand before Jesus Christ. In light of that, God commands people, all people everywhere, to repent, to change their mind, to change their life, and to put their trust in Jesus. And so it's, it's interesting, just as the Areopagus, they are responsible for rendering verdicts for Athens, right? They are the local council of authority. And so Paul is saying, just as Athens has this Areopagus, the universe also has a judgment seat where judgment will be rendered by the man that God has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe Paul probably took time in his time with them to explain that Jesus died on the cross. He took the curse for us so that when we stand before him, we can be declared righteous in God's sight. We receive the forgiveness of all our sins and we will be granted eternal life through his resurrection. And Paul says in verse 31, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, earlier in the speech, Paul had said, from one man, God made all the nations, right? From Adam, God made all the nations. Now, a new man, the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will bring a resurrection to all of creation, to all the nations. That's how it's going to end. And sometimes I think we wonder why, man, why hasn't God done more with all the injustices of our, our world? Why hasn't God uh, done anything to take care of, you know, the, the, the holocausts and the, the, all the horrible things that have happened and continue to happen? And the, the answer is it's headed towards a judgment day 
where every wrong will be righted. I mean, if you just believe the universe ends and that's it, there's no justice. Nothing, nothing is, is going to be taken care of. But no, we're headed towards a day when God will declare what is, what is right and just, and he will right every wrong in his perfect sovereign wisdom. And we will all stand before him and be judged according to what we have done in the body. And all those who have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ will be saved. And those who are not as sheep will depart to eternal judgment. And after that, God will renew the world. We will have resurrected bodies. We will be one with him, one with the Lord, and we will have eternal happiness forever and ever. We can hardly imagine, friends, what it's going to be like when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. But God is the judge, and we're headed towards a resurrection. That's where this thing is going. So, in summary, whether it's the philosophers or a board meeting or a group of friends who just want to know what you believe, Paul's sermon gives us a good springboard. God is the creator of all things. God is the sustainer of all life. God is the father. We're all prodigals estranged from home. And God is the judge. We are headed towards resurrection. And Jesus is the proof that all these things are true because he has raised him from the dead. So put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Your sins will be forgiven and you will find a father who will love you and sustain you. So our application this morning is simple. God is the creator. Give him worship. God is the sustainer. Find rest in him. God is our father. Run home to him. And God is the judge. Repent and trust in him.